Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello and welcome. My name is Jacob Steele, the events curator producer for Banyan Books and Sound. Today, we are delighted to be hosting fermentation master Sander Katz for a presentation on his new book, Sander Katz's Fermentation Journeys. Sander Katz is a fermentation revivalist. He is a James Beard Award winner and a New York Times bestselling author of four previous books, including Wild Fermentation, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, The Art of Fermentation, and fermentation as metaphor. The hundreds of fermentation workshops he has taught around the world have helped catalyze a broad revival of the fermentation arts. He has been, been described as the high priest of fermentation by the New Yorker and as a fermentation master by the Wall Street Journal. His new book, Sander Katz's Fermentation Journeys, features the recipes, processes, cultural traditions, and stories from around the globe that inspire his life's work. It is a cookbook and more destined to become a modern classic essential for every home chef. You can learn more about Sanders' work at wildfermentation.com. Without further ado, I present you Sander Katz. All right, <clears throat> thank you so much, Jacob. Um, and uh, uh, thank you to people around Vancouver and beyond who are with us today. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, uh, uh, you know, my my new book and and how I came to um, to write it, and uh, you know, tell a little bit about about my journey. Um, but I'm going to really keep my presentation relatively short. I have a few show and tell items. I'm going to, you know, pull, pull out some fermentation projects to, to talk about. But I want to keep my presentation relatively short in order to maximize the time that we have available for, um, um, you know, more interaction to hear, you know, what's on your mind. And certainly it'll be, you know, more satisfying for you and more interesting for me, um, you know, if we talk about the things that are on your mind. But I'll just start by giving a little overview of um, this. This is my new book. Um, you know, I get to just call it Fermentation Journeys. Um, uh, and... Uh, it's a book that I've really been thinking about for, I don't know, maybe over the last 10 years or so. Um, I mean, basically, you know, the story of how I fell into fermentation. I mean, I did not, like as a child, think I was going to be a fermentation revivalist and write about fermentation. I mean, I, you know, like, like almost every human being in almost every part of the world, I, I enjoyed certain flavors of fermentation. Um, you know, we always had yogurt in the refrigerator. I liked yogurt. Um, um, you know, as a kid, I had a reputation for loving pickles. You know, I didn't know how they were made. I wasn't thinking about fermentation, but I was very drawn to the flavor of the kinds of pickles that we ate in my family, which would be, you know, um, um, in New York, we call them sour pickles. Outside of New York, they're general, generally referred to as kosher dills. Um, but, uh, you know, basically they're cucumbers fermented in a saltwater brine 
with garlic, dill, sometimes chili peppers, sometimes grape leaves to help keep them crunchy. Um, and the flavor is lactic acid. Now, I didn't know this when I was a kid, but you know, I would eat pickles at some of my friends' houses. I would see the pickles in the supermarket and um, you know, sometimes try those. And they had a very different flavor, which I now can say is a vinegar pickle. Um, um, there's, there's different ways of achieving a pickle, but, 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 but anyway, I love pickles. Um, uh, in my mid twenties, I spent a couple of years following a macrobiotic diet and macrobiotics places an emphasis on the digestive benefit of pickles and other live ferments. And so, you know, these foods that I'd always loved to eat because they were so delicious, you know, suddenly I had like a, like an ideology, this idea that they, you know, help improve digestion, maybe that they help improve overall immune function. And, you know, I started really seeking out these foods on a regular basis, uh, you know, just to be supportive of uh, uh, good health. Um, but I still wasn't making them myself. And, and you know, what, what really made it relevant for me to learn how to make them myself is I moved uh, in 1993, uh, um, 1993, yeah, sure, at, uh, um, um, you know, just before I turned 31, I moved from New York to rural Tennessee. And among the changes in my life at that, at that moment is I started gardening. And, you know, the first season in the garden, you know, that's when I had a practical reason to learn about fermentation because, you know, I was such a naive city kid. It had never occurred to me that in the garden, all the radishes would be ready at about the same time. All the cabbages would be ready at about the same time. So, you know, when we had a nice row of cabbages, I decided it was time for me to learn how to make sauerkraut. Uh, I knew sauerkraut had something to do with preservation. So it seemed like the thing to do with a, you know, with a bunch of cabbage all at once. Um, and I looked in the joy of cooking and I learned how to make sauerkraut from the joy of cooking. It was deceptively simple, chop vegetables, salt them, uh, season them if you like, get them juicy, pack them into a jar or a crock. Um, uh, you know, and then after that first batch was so delicious, I just started experimenting. You know, I'm, I'm sort of constitutionally unable to follow a recipe exactly. So, you know, I just started like playing around with different vegetables. What happens if you add carrots? What happens if you add turnips? What if you use a different kind of seasoning? Um, you know, what if you vary the amount of salt? And I, I just started experimenting and I also learned how to make yogurt and I played around with country winemaking and, you know, sort of slowly. I became obsessed with the whole idea of fermentation and, you know, started looking in books, uh, you know, from different cuisines around the world to try to learn about, um, uh, you know, fermentation processes in, in those parts of the world. And, you know, the first few years, it was largely a personal obsession that I shared with my friends. Then I got a reputation. A friend started calling me Sandor Kraut because I was always showing up with sauerkraut. And um, I got invited to teach. Some people I knew who live in a community who were organizing what they described as a food Skillshare event invited me to teach a sauerkraut making workshop. And that was really interesting. I mean, it was fun to demystify the process for people, but it also, you know, people's questions forced me to do some more research about this process. So for instance, I never had been concerned about the safety of it, but, you know, people started, you know, holding up jars of, of vegetables that we'd shredded and saying, how can I be sure I have good bacteria growing in here and not something dangerous? And so, you know, that forced me to do a little bit of research to be able to answer people's questions. And, you know, it turns out, you know, fermented vegetables are about the safest food we know. I mean, statistically, vegetables are much safer after they have been fermented than, we, than, they, than they are when they are raw because the, the process protect it protects i mean even if they happen to have been exposed to cells of you know some organism that could potentially be pathogenic to us you know the great likelihood is that in the fermentation the lactic acid bacteria would dominate and as they acidify the environment they would destroy the pathogens it's just very convenient for us that the pathogens that are worrisome and and, and can hurt us can't can't tolerate an acidic environment so so anyway, I mean, it was fun for me to learn, to, to teach, and it forced me to learn more. And I did this 1998, 1999, 2000, and 2001, I had a conflict and I couldn't make this annual event and I really felt terrible about it. And as a result, I spent a month writing down all of my fermentation recipes and I produced a little zine. 
that I self-published. There's not an illustration in it. It's just, you know, sort of recipes and me talking about the foods. And, you know, I called this wild fermentation, but it was wild fermentation, a do-it-yourself guide to cultural manipulation. Um, so anyway, that is what became wild fermentation. I organized a book tour, my book tour for wild fermentation from 2003 somehow never ended because, you know, as I knew from the start, you know, there are people who are passionately interested in fermentation. There are people who are very curious about fermentation. Fer fermentation is something that affects everybody's life, but you know, like all aspects of food production, it's largely disappeared from the fabric fabric of our communities. So it's just mysterious to people. And people, you know, because most of us have like been taught to be fearful of bacteria, people project that anxiety onto the process of fermentation, you know, which is not rocket science and, you know, which is a, you know, like a set of disparate practices that, um, you know, always have practical benefit to people. Um, um, you know, a preservation method like would not be practiced year after year after year if there was a 75% or a 90% success rate, meaning that a 25% chance or a 10% chance that it could make people sick. So, I mean, you know, all of these are processes for, for safety and, and other practical benefits, preservation. I mean, sauerkraut, yogurt, cheese, you know, these are all, um, uh, you know, strategies for, you know, preserving abundance to eat at some other period of the year where there's not so much abundance. Um, that's not the only practical benefit. You know, fermentation pre-digests food and makes nutrients more bioavailable to us. It breaks down um, um, certain toxic compounds and generates some additional beneficial compounds. And then there's the probiotics. Um, um, you know, we're learning more and more about how important bacteria are to our um, um, health and well-being, to every aspect of our physiology, the trillion bacteria that are in residence in our bodies, um, in great biodiversity, but importantly, in less biodiversity than people in the past had as a result of chemical exposure, as a result of diets with more processed food and less fiber, um, you know, we're, we are experiencing narrowing biodiversity in the gut. And, you know, we're not sure all of the sort of, um, um, you know, collective health problems that, that we experience are related to that. But, um, but many of them are. And so, you know, this idea of diversifying gut bacteria, you know, can potentially improve every aspect of our health. I mean, certainly it can improve digestion and immune function. There's some new evidence that it can potentially shift our brain chemistry and, and improve our mental health. But, um, you know, no aspect of our existence, our well-being, our health is apart from, you know, this community of bacteria that are part of us that we can replenish with the help of uh, uh, fermented foods and beverages. Um, so, I mean, I've been teaching about fermentation, um, you know, since 1998, since wild fermentation came out in 2003. I've, I've traveled all around. Increasingly through the years, I've been invited further and further away. At this point, I've, I've taught in probably 25 countries, um, nearly all the states of the U.S., the majority of the provinces of uh, uh, Canada, um, and all along I've been, you know, I've, I've been eating also. And, and so learning about foods in different parts of the world, learning about beverages, learning how they're made. And, you know, I always knew eventually I'd write a book about foods and beverages that I encountered in my travels. But, you know, at the beginning of 2020, I had, I had all these plants. Um, um, you know, I started the year teaching in Australia and New Zealand. I had plants to teach in Peru. I had plants to teach in Yukon, in Iceland. Uh, uh, um, I had plans to travel to Taiwan. So, you know, I mean, I just figured this book was somewhere in the future and then everything got canceled. And so, you know, this, this book, I, I really, you know, kind of, um, um, you know, wrote when I was at home during, during COVID. 
um, you know, my kitchen was bubbling with, um, you know, things that I had seen made, but, you know, suddenly I had to like up my game and, and, um, um, you know, write recipes for them. And so this is a book about ferments of my travels. And originally I conceptualized that I would organize it geographically and say like, you know, this is my trip to Japan. This is my trip to Colombia. Um, but, you know, as I, as I began a book structured in that way, I realized that, you know, my strength as a fermentation generalist is in connecting the dots. And, you know, it's really like the similarities and the distinctions between similar foods in different places that is most interesting to me. And so, you know, I, I ended up deciding to organize the book thematically instead. Um, and, um, you know, so there's, a, um, you know, a chapter on fermenting vegetables. There's a chapter on fermenting grains. There's a chapter on uh, 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 fermenting beans. Um, um, and, and so, you know, the type of food gets a cross-cultural uh, 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 treatment. Um, so I, I can go on and on. I, I'm, I'm, I have show and tell items, but it looks like there's a lot of questions. And maybe if we just jump into some of the questions, then, um, you know, I'll bring, my, I'll bring my show and tell items to bear as they are relevant to things that people want to talk about. Okay, so uh, let's begin with BB. Um, what is the ideal salt percentage for fermentation? Or do different fermentations require different percentages? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, fermentation is a, is a vast, vast, vast world and all kinds of ferments don't use any kind of salt, right? Like you don't put salt in wine when you're fermenting wine, um, typically. Um, um, so, but, but, but certain ferments, you, you, you generally use salt. So, you know, the fermentation of vegetables, I mean, I typically use salt. There definitely are examples in the world of people who are fermenting vegetables in places that have not historically had, um, um, you know, easy access to salt. There are ways that people ferment vegetables without any salt, but salt provides a lot of benefits. Salt hardens pectins to make vegetables more crispy and crunchy. Salt inhibits enzymes that break down pectins that can make vegetables get very soft and mushy. So if you're trying to ferment without any salt or with very small proportions of salt, you're likely to have more success in a cooler environment than in a warmer environment. And you're also more likely to have success in a fermentation of a limited length of time rather than one with a very long length of time. Um, you know, generally if I'm dry salting the sauerkraut method, I mean, you know, when I meet people who's like, you know, great grandparents were making sauerkraut, like usually they make a salty sauerkraut because, you know, you go back a couple of generations and, you know, this was an important survival food. And, you know, this might be the only vegetables that people would see for the next, you know, six months or something. And so, you know, if people had access to salt in a situation like that, they would often salt it rather heavily. But if you're, you know, doing this in 2021, not so much for survival through a long, harsh winter, but more to have something delicious that you and your family are going to enjoy eating, to um, uh, derive the benefit of probiotics and have this like, you know, nutritious food at the ready anytime. I mean, and, and you're going to be fermenting it for a relatively short period of time and then storing it in a refrigerator. I mean, you can use really exceedingly small proportions of salt. So, I mean, I'm all over the place with salt. Like, you know, when I make things in the summer, I live in a place that's much hotter than, than Vancouver. Um, you know, I use more salt because salt slows things down. Um, I mean, certainly when I make my, the beloved, you know, cucumber pickles, sour pickles of my youth, I mean, I usually mix up a 5% brine. So now part of that is that I'm, I, that's just accounting for the water, not the vegetables. And you want to use as little brine as possible to cover the vegetables. So, you know, that ends up being about two and a half percent salt once you pour it over the vegetables and the salt absorbs into the vegetables. But I'm starting with a fairly strong brine, like, you know, for a liter of water, 50 grams of salt. For a quart, if you're doing it with a tablespoon, that would be about three tablespoons of um, 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 salt. If I'm dry salting vegetables, where it's not going to be diluted, then I'll always do much lower. Like a high salt would be maybe like two and a half percent salt. But, you know, this is not rocket science. You know, if you're, if you're 
producing a commercial product that where every batch needs to be the same, then obviously you do need to weigh your ingredients and weigh your salt simply for consistency. But if you're doing this for your own, you know, I assume that like, if you make lentil soup or onion soup, you are not weighing the salt when you salt it. You're putting a little bit of salt in, you're mixing it, you're tasting it, and you're doing subjective evaluation. Does that need more salt? That's how I do sauerkraut. I lightly salt as I'm shredding the vegetables and then I mix it all together and then I just taste a little piece. And I just think to myself, is that enough salt? Does that taste good to me? Or would I be happier if there was more salt? It's always easier to add salt than it is to subtract salt. So I, I hope that that sort of answers the question. You know, a lot of questions in fermentation like don't have like a an absolute answer. There's very few questions that have absolute answers in the realm of fermentation because, you know, it's such disparate practices that people do, people do everything in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, someone might offer you an absolute answer like, oh, you need 2.25% salt, but like, I guarantee you that is not the whole story. Thank you. <clears throat> so Sharon asks, I just received a new book, or she writes, I just received a new book. I'm a complete beginner. Couple of questions. So first one, are ferments such as regular pickles uh, good for digestion? Or from a fermentation perspective, is there a specific process to augment the probiotic factor? And then her second question is, what is the best way to start? I'm particularly interested in sauerkraut. Yeah, and sauerkraut is just the perfect place to start. It's just easy. So, okay, when we talk about pickles, we got we're, we're talking about a few different things. A pickle is anything preserved in an acidic medium. So, you know, North American supermarket shelves are filled with, you know, shelf-stable jars of you know, vegetables, other things, um, um, you know, eggs, pig's feet, you know, you name it, anything that can be preserved in acidic medium, you'll find it in supermarkets, but generally it's a hot vinegar solution poured over the cucumbers or the eggs or the um, uh, pig's feet or, or, or whatever. And so that's a pickle that's preserved in an acidic medium. It's not particularly alive because the vinegar was hot and, and generally it was heat processed. But like the pickles that I grew up with, you know, in a delicatessen out of a barrel, you know, so vegetables that were in a saltwater brine, that's also a pickle because the lactic acid bacteria that are on the vegetables, they're on all vegetables, they're on all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth. Um, lactic acid bacteria are basically metabolizing carbohydrates in the vegetables and turning them into lactic acid. And so over time, lactic acid is building up in there and, um, and, 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 and it's acidifying and preserving the vegetables. That latter kind where the acid is derived from a fermentation of the vegetables is definitely like the, where you're gonna find the best probiotics, at least from, from um, uh, uh, fermented vegetables. I mean, there's other fermented foods that have probiotics. I mean, the, the key is you wanna eat things that are fermented and then not cooked or heat processed after their fermentation. So, you know, let, let's take sourdough. You know, if you wanna eat a sourdough dough raw, that's teeming with probiotics, but who wants to eat raw dough? Um, you know, it just doesn't taste very good. Um, and, um, you know, after you bake it into bread, it's delicious, but, you know, because of the high heat, it's no longer alive. So just certain foods lend themselves more easily to live culture consumption than others. But fermented vegetables are the perfect way to start. Sauerkraut is the easiest method, but certainly not the, the only method. And, you know, one of the themes that I explore in my new book is Chinese methods of fermenting vegetables. And, you know, as someone who's been, you know, thinking a lot about sauerkraut for you know, half of my life, um, um, you know, the story that is repeated throughout the literature is this idea that the idea of fermenting vegetables in a salty environment comes from China and that it's nomadic people of Central Asia that witnessed it in China and brought the idea westward through Central Asia and into Eastern Europe. 
Um, and so I always sort of had the idea that I wanted to go to China and try to learn something about, you know, the roots of vegetable fermentation. And in 2016, a Chinese American friend invited me to go to China with her mother. And, you know, we had a beautiful, beautiful trip. I learned so much, but I learned among many other things, some great Chinese methods for fermenting vegetables that are not quite like sauerkraut. They're their own thing. But this is a style, this is a style called pao tsai. And this is a brine it, it's turned pink because I, I, I put some um, purple daikon in a few weeks ago and the, 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 the pigment from the daikons uh, um, has uh, um, you know, gone into the, the brine and given it some color. But this is a spiced brine. It has um, uh, uh, ginger and um, uh, these are called um, black cardamom. It has uh, some chili peppers. It has Sichuan peppercorns. Um, and then the first batch of vegetables that I put in, I left for about two weeks, but now this is months old. And now I really just put vegetables in for, you know, a few days or maybe a week at, at most. And, you know, over time I've added more, I just recently added more ginger and chilies and um, Sichuan peppercorns to the brine. You have to add more salt because salt absorbs into the vegetables and every vegetable you take out, some salt migrates out with it. But this has been so fun having like a perpetual brine like this. So all I'm saying is there's a lot of different ways you can ferment vegetables. I absolutely recommend sauerkraut as, you know, just the easiest, most straightforward way to start. But, you know, it's the beginning of the process. It's not the end of the process. And especially in Fermentation Journeys, my new book, I really sort of go into some, you know, different styles of, of fermenting vegetables that I think, um, um, you know, people who have, who have been making sauerkraut will enjoy kind of mixing it up. Oh, that looks delicious, by the way. Um, so uh, Aya asks, Thanks for, well, she says, thanks for the event. Uh, I've been trying to reduce electricity use, but I'm not being uh, successful with uh, fermented foods like miso, amazaki, soya sauce, pickles, kimchi, etc. How far can you manage your ferment without using a fridge? And any tips for natural temperature long lasting uh, for good taste? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you don't need a fridge for any fermenting. I mean, you know, if you are one of the people like living on the margins of, um, you know, um, a modern North American society without a refrigerator, more power to you. You need fermentation more than any of the rest of us. Now, having a fridge gives you wide latitude. Um, um, you know, the, the, we could conceptualize our fridges as um, fermentation slowing devices in our in our kitchens because you know, that's what they do. That's how they preserve food is they're just a cooler temperature. So all the microbes and all the enzymes that can potentially decompose our food or degrade our food are simply slowed down by being in a cooler environment. And, you know, microorganisms and enzymes metabolize faster in warmer environments and more slowly in cooler environments. So, you know, without the refrigerator, you have to be strategic. So first of all, it's just the summer is its own time. You don't need to preserve food in the summer because there's lots of fresh food in the summer. So you have to think about, you know, the cooler parts of the year being the parts of the year that you're able to preserve food. And, um, you know, you might not be able to do things that go for, you know, that go for years and then you have a lot of them. Um, but, you know, I mean, something like soy sauce, you don't need a fridge. I mean, I, I, I don't keep soy sauce in my refrigerator. I just, I just keep it out at ambient temperature. And, you know, right now, I'm, uh, this is soy sauce that, you know, I just bottled this year and I made it in 2019. So this is two-year-old soy sauce. And the bottle is, is probably from, from uh, some soy sauce that I bought, but this is, this is, this is what I made. And, you don't need a refrigerator for it. Now, miso, now, if you have a cellar, you know, a cellar is history's refrigerator. You know, it's like the, the, the place that stayed the earth temperature. So, I mean, in certain places in the world, you can't have cellars because the groundwater is too high, but in places where you can have cellars, you know, that's the place that stays more or less the earth temperature all the time. So, in the summertime, that's a cool spot where you can store things. And in the wintertime, that's a relatively warm spot where you can 
uh, uh, store things. But it, you know, in any case, it, it's always like has a moderating effect on the temperature. So whether you're like, you know, curing meat or aging cheese or aging miso, these processes can happen much more slowly at the earth temperatures of a cellar than they will, you know, in your house that's either getting hot in the summertime or you're heating it to be comfortable in the wintertime. Um, but, you know, you, you, you don't need a refrigerator. And, and one thing is you can, especially in like coastal area, like, like, um, um, like, you know, coastal British Columbia, um, you know, it doesn't get that cold outside either. I mean, I actually, in coastal Alaska, I visited this community where they were making miso and they were, they were storing the miso outside in, in coastal Alaska. And, you know, they were able to do that because they're in a place that doesn't get like super, super cold and the miso is very salty. So, um, um, uh, like it doesn't freeze. Like if the, you know, if the temperature gets below freezing, even significantly below freezing for a short time, it, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be able to freeze the miso. So, I mean, I would just encourage you to think about like, you know, that most of these foods don't really need the refrigerator. Now they might last longer in the refrigerator. They might stay fresh longer in the refrigerator, but most of them can be maintained perfectly well at, um, at ambient temperatures, although sometimes for more limited period, periods of time. But things that are salty, acidic in age, things like this, they don't need to be in the refrigerator. Like the worst that might happen is if there's a big surface area exposed, you might get a little floating island of some mold on there. I mean, any food will last much longer if the vessel is completely full or, or nearly completely full. Like most food degradation has to do with oxygen whether it's surface mold growing, whether it's oxidation of nutrients. So, you know, just try to bear that in mind that, you know, um, um, package things in ways that minimize airspace and air exposure. Great. Um, so Joyce writes uh, that she's a total newbie. Um, many food sensitivities, gluten-free. Interested in keeping things simple and having success. So for her, would making buckwheat sourdough be a good first project? Yeah, so, okay, so buckwheat sourdough is um, uh, a recipe that is in um, wild fermentation. And, um, you know, it's really just like the easiest and the most delicious, totally gluten-free bread that you can make a loaf and slice and make sandwiches with, um, you know, that, 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 that I have had. Um, you know, in terms of like overall, like like for a total newbie, I mean, I, I would recommend that almost anybody start with sauerkraut, start with making vegetables. But, you know, especially if you're someone who, you know, can't eat gluten and is missing bread and you want to, you know, make something bread-like that won't make you feel bad, I would highly recommend the, the, the buckwheat bread. I mean, I can very briefly describe the process. I mean, it's deceptively simple. You take raw, whole buckwheat groats, about three cups of them will make about a loaf of bread, soak them in water overnight. Then strain out, you know, drain off that, that, that um, uh, uh, soaking water, which will develop sort of mucilaginous strands. Get rid of that. And then put it in the blender with a little bit of fresh water and then blend it into a smooth paste. Add just as much water as you need for the blender to be able to blend it into a smooth paste. Um, um, and then rise that batter for about 24 hours and put it in a vessel big enough for it to like double in size because it will. Um, uh, and then mix some salt in and then put it in a loaf pan uh, uh, the, 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 the key to having a good loaf is you, you need to heavily oil that pan. And then what I do is I take sesame seeds and I just, I just shake a layer of sesame seeds on the bottom and the corners and as much of the sides as I can, because it's a very sticky batter. This, you know, the mucilaginousness of the grain 
um, uh, is what holds it together into a, a, a nice loaf of bread, but it's also sticky. It'll want to stick to the side. So the, the, the sesame seeds or other little seeds just, you know, help it not stick so bad so you can get the loaf out. Then you bake it for a little more than an hour at like 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, uh, then you take it out, leave it in the pan to cool for like 10 or 15 minutes, then take a knife, run it around the edges and take it out of there. And I mean, it's a beautiful, straightforward <clears throat> process. I mean, most of the, you know, most of the fermentation of grains is really, really straightforward. It's water. Like the thing that, like, just like a cabbage, you know, and, and all vegetables have lactic acid bacteria, all grains have lactic acid bacteria and yeast. Um, you know, it's just the fact that they are dry in their mature state is what gives them their shelf stability. And nobody's ever fermented a grain or a bean in order to preserve it because they preserve so well in their mature state. All you have to do is keep them dry. But the first step of every fermentation process of grains and beans is adding water. And some of the processes, that's the whole thing is you just add water. Like I have a recipe for um, um, kisil, which is a, um, um, a word from uh, uh, Belarus where my, where my grandparents came from. But kisil is fermented oats. So, you know, I mean, like you, the, the, the liquid becomes like oat milk. I mean, it's so rich. It's so flavorful and delicious. And then the oats themselves, you add a little bit of fresh water and cook it into the creamiest oatmeal you've ever had. Um, so, you know, just the fermentation just makes everything creamier and, and, and easier to digest and, and more flavorful. Um, and that's the whole thing. There's nothing besides, besides soaking that's involved. Um, <clears throat> you know, something like um, um, Indian dosas, which are these, um, um, you know, rice and lentil crepes. You soak them and then you put them in a blender, just like with the buckwheat bread, blend them into a batter, let that batter rise and ferment. And then you create these, you know, beautiful little um, um, crispy crepes out of them. But, you know, the fermentation of, um, um, you know, grains and beans, you know, I mean, there are certainly examples of more, more, you know, complicated ones where you're trying to get some specific organism to grow. But, you know, most of the simple ones are their wild fermentation. It's basically, you know, supporting the growth of whatever's dominant on them, um, you know, which tends to be lactic acid bacteria and yeast. Zona asks, uh, can you please tell us about fermenting fruit, including lemons and oranges, if it's possible to ferment? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, I mean, I would say that the you know, for most people, the highest and best use of fruit for fermentation would be to make alcohol. So, you know, wine, cider, this whole world of country wines where, you know, you can, you can make wine out of anything flavorful. You make a sugar water solution and then you infuse it with your elderberries or um, um, uh, uh, your your sumac flowers or dandelions or blueberries or blackberries or or whatever. So that's one direction. So you can go in like an alcoholic direction with um, uh, 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 fruit, but you can also um, uh, uh, make pickles out of fruit. I mean, especially in Russian cuisine, there's a lot of pickling. I mean, it's not so much generally out of um, um, like citrus, but, you know, crab apples or um, uh, cherries or even watermelons, you know, there's a lot of pickling. So if you sort of introduce salt, then that will typically create an environment that is going to favor the lactic acid bacteria, which are also always present on, 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 on fruit. So, um, and then, you know, there's all kinds of hybrid uh, 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 traditions. So like there's a style of kimchi that people in Korea enjoy that's fruit kimchi where, you know, in addition to, you know, some cabbage and some spices, you'll have some, um, you'll have some fruit, maybe some pears, maybe some apples. I love to like mix a lot of different fruits in. I mean, one year I was in the Pacific Northwest in like July and we made this like this beautiful like multi-berry fruit kimchi. So, um, um, you know, you, you, you can definitely like 
pickle fruit like that. You know, then if we look at like, you know, Indian style pickles or North African style pickles, there's a lot of preserving lemons and limes using fermentation and a lot of salt. So like, I, I mean, I don't have it in easy reach. It's on the other side of the room, but like I have a lime pickle that I made like two years ago. And I mean, I'm almost at the end of it, but it's never been in the refrigerator. Um, you know, I basically uh, quartered the limes and left them connected at the end. And then I made a mixture of, you know, salt and all of these Indian spices. I mean, I can't off the top of my head remember exactly what spices I used. And then I just sort of packed that spice mixture into the center of, 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 of each of the, um, limes and then I packed all the limes into a jar and then I did this thing that, that, that comes up in a lot of Indian pickling recipes where like I put them out in the sun and then I bring them in at night and then I put them out in the sun for you know for like a week I would put it out whenever whenever it was sunny and you know I think that the idea is that the sun you know helps uh, um, draw juices out of the vegetables um, you know, the salt helps also. But, you know, over time it gets juicier and the vegetables get submerged. And in that sweet, salty, sour, spicy medium, there's a little bit of fermentation and the, and the physicality and flavor of the limes is really well preserved. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, lo there's a lot of different ways you can, you can, um, uh, ferment fruit. You know, personally, I would generally think of, you know, wine as the, you know, as, 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 as the first thing. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, so Trevor asks, uh, you traveled to Asia and, uh, I followed and enjoyed that journey. Thank you. I'm just wondering if you have a list of places that would be beneficial to visit. When I go to Japan next, I plan to try to visit some fermentation business if I can, or areas that would be of interest. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, if you're interested in world fermentation traditions, there's no area of the world that would not be of interest. I mean, there's just, you know, there's, there's different kinds of fermentation processes everywhere. Now, Japan is a place where, you know, there's a, you know, well, there's a high population density, but there's also, you know, just a, you know, a, 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 a huge amount of fermentation. I mean, you know, fermentation processes have a really, you know, kind of central role in, 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 in Japanese cuisine. And so I would say wherever you're going in Japan, uh, you know, I mean, the production of fermented foods is extremely decentralized in Japan. And, you know, every, every, you know, town beyond the tiniest size is going to have a miso shop. They're going to have a sake maker. Um, and so, you know, you can find these things. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't know enough to specifically say like, oh, this region of Japan, you should definitely go to, or, or that region of Japan. But, um, you know, fermentation is so prominent in, 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 in Japanese cuisine that I think wherever you go, you would, um, you know, be able to find producers who would be, um, you know, happy to, you know, show you, show you what they're doing. Sometimes, I mean, people have really wanted to know, like, okay, where in the world is there the most fermentation? And I mean, I just, at this point, I think, you know, sure, there might be places like, you know, Japan, where it's more obvious how important the role of fermentation is in people's uh, uh, diets and lives. But I mean, I just think everywhere. I, I mean, fermentation is so integral to how people eat. So like, you know, you take a place like Turkey and I have not been to Turkey, but um, you, you know, you take a simple food like yogurt, which comes from Turkey, and there's all these subsidiary foods that are based on yogurt. So like I've had just dry blocks of yogurt that you just sort of chew on and gnaw on and suck on. And, you know, I mean, it could really like, you know, I could see how that, that would be a great like traveling food or, um, um, you know, it'd be easy to carry, you know, you it could occupy you for a long time and you'd have the feeling that you're like getting something out of it. And then in this new book, I have a section on Tarhana, which is this amazing, Turkish food um, that I learned about from a Turkish food writer that I that I met at a conference. Um, but Tarhana is basically mm -hmm. yogurt 
and some form of wheat, wheat flour or bulgur, um, um, and often vegetables or sometimes fruit also mixed in. And then, you know, they're all mixed together and fermented together and then it's dried. And then it becomes the basis for soups. So it's like, you know, you could think of it as like, you know, the world's first instant soup because it was all these like flavorful dehydrated elements that you could simply pour boiling water on them and have something, you know, really delicious and substantive to eat, you know, or you could use it as the, for the basis of, you know, let's say you're making a, like a stew and you just want some to thicken it up and give it some flavor, you know, you could use it in an application like that uh, 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 as well. But, you know, really what I'm trying to get is like fermentations everywhere. I mean, you know, throughout Central and South America, throughout Africa, um, um, you know, ev everywhere in the world, people have um, distinctive fermentation practices. So it's not, you know, just certain regions. It's, it's you know, really a global phenomenon. Are there uh, patterns that you see of how fermentation styles differ in general regions? Well, I mean, I would say the biggest patterns I see have to do with climate. So, you know, in the tropics, you know, there's not never a long season without food. So, you know, the focus of fermentation is a little bit less on seasonal preservation and, um, you know, more on detoxifying things, um, um, you know, because certain important tropical foods like cassava and taro, you know, have compounds in them that can be toxic that are broken down by fermentation. So, you know, detoxifying food becomes uh, um, um, uh, more important. Whereas, you know, in, in the, you know, far northern places um, and the far, far so southern places, you know, preservation is just becomes more important. I mean, like in the Arctic regions of the world, I mean, people never could have settled like in, you know, the northern parts of Canada and Alaska and Siberia and Greenland. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the, the ability of humans to habitate those regions is, you know, purely a function of people having effective, you know, means to um, uh, uh, preserve food from, you know, the summer, which is a season of, you know, incredible plenty in these far northern places to get people through the winter where, you know, it's hard to do anything and it's hard to, you know, access uh, uh, fresh food resources. So, I mean, that's really the, 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 the biggest patterns I would see have to do with, you know, sort of, um, um, you know, general weather and climate. Uh, Deanne asks uh, or says, uh, Fab Stories, any tips for a small kitchen space, 650 square feet apartment? What are some of the concerns in terms of cross pollination? Um, is that a myth? Question mark. Um, and then uh, she writes, I make booch. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that. Uh, B O O C H. Um, yeah. I heard you have to be careful with what's in the air. And then one more thing if you have time, can you expand upon the notion of how our brains are affected? So a few pieces in there. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Okay, in terms of small space, you just have to decide what you want to do. You know, like, let's say you're making sauerkraut. Like, this is a, you know, a quart-sized, liter-sized jar. This does not take up a lot of space. You know, you can, like, you can use a tiny little cutting board and a knife and shred your vegetables at any scale. So, like, a liter-sized vessel will take about a kilo of vegetables to, to fill up. And, you know, and then this can just sit on your counter somewhere. You can put it on the shelf, uh, uh, whatever. I mean, you know, you, I mean, the th I get in a small kitchen, you, you can't, you know, have a hundred projects going at once, but, you know, that just means that you have to decide which ones you want to do. Now, I like that you use the word cross-pollination. Usually that's phrased as cross-contamination. Um, and, uh, well, I became friendly with this woman who um, uh, uh, passed away last year. Her name is Betty Steckmeyer. And the way I got to know her is that she started a business with her husband, Gordon, in the 70s in California that was called Gem Cultures. And they were the 
I mean, the, the business still exists. Betty and Gordon's daughter is running the business. Um, but um, um, they were the first people, um, you know, selling starter cultures to home fermenters starting in the 70s. And um, uh, in the basement of their home, Betty set up a little commercial kitchen and, you know, and basically like an eight foot square space. She was propagating kefir grains and kombucha mothers and tempeh starter and, 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 and she just, you know, she, she was producing and selling all of these different starters from a really small uh, uh, space. And she claims that she never experienced any uh, um, um, cross-contamination. Um, I, I, you know, I, I mean, in general, I would say that I haven't. I mean, when I notice it is when I'm trying to grow out the pure culture mold starters. So like I use the same incubation space, like a defunct refrigerator for making koji and for making tempeh. And, um, you know, I know from the literature that historically, you know, koji always you know, frequently had rosopus in it, which is the tempeh organism, and tempeh often had uh, uh, aspergillus in it, which is the koji organism. So, you know, I mean, this idea of working with pure cultures is a 20th century idea uh, um, facilitated exclusively by microbiology. Like, historically, nobody was able to isolate singular organisms and work with singular organisms. So, you know, all traditional fermentation is working with mixed cultures. Like, you know, right now, um, you know, if you're, if, if, if you like to drink beer, we're, we're, we're in a golden age of beer and, um, you know, just the, the, the proliferation of microbreweries, the growth of, a mar of the market of people who are interested in trying like quirky different kinds of styles of beer is 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 growing and growing and growing so one of the movements in beer is sour beers now i would propose that until the 20th century all beer was sour beer because there was no such thing as yeast as a separate thing and yeast is always in the presence of lactic acid bacteria so you know in 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 its natural habitats if you just capture yeast from a berry or something. It'll always be with lactic acid bacteria. So, you know, I would just say that, you know, people always contended with the presence of lactic acid bacteria um, um, uh, in their beer until the 20th century. And then our palates got narrowed. So like, you know, I was visiting my dad uh, a month ago and, you know, I went to the beer store and I bought a sour beer and my dad wanted to see what I was drinking and he had a little taste of it. And he just made this face like, you know, he just couldn't imagine that anyone would want their beer to taste like that. But I mean, I just find it incredibly delicious. Um, um, so, uh, wow, I got off on a tangent. Um, um, pure cultures cross-contamination. Yeah, I mean, um, you really don't have to worry about, about cross-contamination. I mean, maybe if you're doing some very, very specific thing, you would need to, but for most home fermentation, it, it just, it, it wouldn't matter at all. And generally, it's very minimum, minimal, like how much the organisms are affecting one another through the air. More, it's a question of like, what's on the substrate? What's on the flour? What's on the uh, uh, cabbage? Um, you know, to a limited degree, what's on your hands? Um, you know, but I think, you know, I think soap and water cleanliness is perfectly adequate. There's no need to like use special chemicals to sterilize everything, wear gloves for everything. Just, you know, just keep reminding yourself, this is not rocket science. Now, there was some question at the end uh, of, her, of her series of questions. Um, uh, if you have time, can you expand upon the notion of how our brains are affected? Well, okay, I can't tell you much. I'm certainly not a neuroscientist or, 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 or anything like that. But I can tell you that, like, over the last 20 years since the Human Microbiome Project, since, you know, we've had, you know, more and more sophisticated tools to be able to study the community of bacteria in our bodies and, you know, begin to comprehend ways in which they affect our well-being. It has been observed that serotonin and other chemicals that we know affect our brains, you know, how we feel and how we think 
are regulated in ways we don't fully understand by bacteria in our intestines. So, you know, the only general, I, all I can really offer is general advice. And I think, feel like, you know, whenever I hear people talking about probiotics in specific terms, it drives me crazy. Like I've heard people saying that like, oh, probiotics will prevent you from getting COVID. There's no data to say that. I mean, maybe we could have wishful thinking and say that, oh, well, bacteria that are likely to improve your immune function, you know, might help you, might help to protect you from COVID. But, you know, there's no specific evidence suggesting that, you know, eating fermented foods is going to like prevent the possibility of you get, getting COVID for, for, for instance. Um, you know, I once saw a kombucha website that claimed that, you know, if you drink kombucha every day, it will prevent your hair from ever going gray. And I can tell you when I read that, my hair didn't look like this. So, um, you know, not that I drink kombucha every day uh, uh, at all, but I do, you know, I've drunk kombucha on, the sem on a semi-regular basis since long before my hair was like this. But anyway, you can't believe everything that people say. And, 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 and I think that, you know, the, 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 the power of probiotics at this point is best articulated in a really broad way, which is that um, restoring biodiversity in the gut has the potential to improve digestion, improve immune function, and potentially to improve mental health. And, but it's really broad. I mean, that's not to say in any given situation, like, you know, oh, you're feeling depressed. Oh, the sauerkraut is going to make you feel better. Like, you know, oh, you're feeling run down and like you might be getting a cold. Oh, the sauerkraut is going to make sure you don't get a cold. Um, um, you know, oh, you're, you know, oh, you're experiencing constipation, eat the sauerkraut and it's going to, you know, get you regular again. I wish it were that straightforward, but it's not. But on the other hand, it's something positive that people can do for themselves that may well make a huge difference. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I, I have heard so many um, uh, uh, testimonial stories from people who, you know, tell me like they experienced um, um, terrible digestive problems for years. They started incorporating, you know, sauerkraut and other live ferments and their digestion improved. So, I mean, I, I mean, I believe it. There's no reason that, 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 that it shouldn't. But I think we have to think about these benefits in really general terms. And, um, um, you know, who cannot benefit from improved digestion and improved immune function? Thank you. <clears throat> um, there's so many questions, we're not going to be able to get to half of them, uh, but I think oh, we have time for one more. Um, this is from Hugh. He writes, I like to ferment a jar of ingredients for a frittata for about 10 days. Would there be any benefit to fermenting them for just one day? In other words, is something always better than nothing? Cheers and thanks for the revolution. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I've, I, I mean, I have many times volunteered to make coleslaw for some big event, and I'll like ferment it for two days, then mix it with mayonnaise. Nobody, nobody has to know that it's fermented. Um, you know, a lot of people don't find the flavors of, you know, uh, six-week-old sauerkraut to be accessible. For some people, the acids that accumulate over such a long period of time makes for too strong of a flavor. So you got to, you know, I mean, my, my, my MO is meeting people where they're at. And, you know, in any kind of fermentation, the fermentation byproduct, whether it's lactic acid, acetic acid, alcohol, whatever it is, it's building up over time. And so you can ferment it for a longer time and have a stronger flavor with a fuller accumulation of the fermentation byproduct, or you can do it for a shorter time. Um, and, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons why you might want to do it for a shorter time. Well, wow. Well, thank you um, so much for joining us today, uh, Sandor, and sharing these inspiring uh, recipes and uh, wisdom. Um, uh, there were many, many requests to invite you back to, to speak after your last talk uh, a few years ago. Um, so I'm glad we've been able to, to do this. And um, I believe it's a it's a brave frontier with deep roots in the past that you're you're um, revitalizing. Um, I just want to remind everybody you can uh, get Sandor Katz's Fermentation Journeys as well as his other books from banyan.com. And uh, this new book is destined to be a contemporary classic. 
Uh, find out more about Sandor Katz's work at wildfermentation.com. And on behalf of Banyan Books, thank you all for coming out today. And uh, thank you, Sandor. And thank you, Jacob. And thank you, people who um, um, devoted part of your day. And I wish we had time to answer all of the questions. Well, they can uh, write you at your website. Uh, am I correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>